Welcome to Cancer HealthCasts, where science is driving hope. I'm your host, Catherine McPhail, and today we are joined by Dr. Paige Green, who is the chief of the basic biobehavioral and psychological sciences branch at NCI. We'll be discussing the relationship between cancer and aging and the current state of research for healthier survivors. Paige, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a great opportunity. So to start us off, could you speak to the relationship between cancer and aging and what attention you hope that additional research will bring to this area? Oh, thank you. It really is a pleasure to talk to you today about cancer and aging. But before I get into that, I I really want us to think about um, population aging in the U.S. Mm. So um, our epi data shows us that nation that that our 65 and older population in the U.S. is projected to nearly double in size in the coming decades from what was 49 million in 2016 to about 95 million in 2060. And so as a result, the proportion of people age 65 and older will grow really from 15% in 2016, which was some time ago, to nearly a quarter of our population in 2060. And what's more important is that the number of people 85 years and older is expected to double by 2030 and triple by 2060. So population aging as we know it, is a major demographic transition. Um, And longer lives or living longer um, really affords great promises and opportunities, but also emerging challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like to set the stage when I talk about cancer and aging, um, really setting our understanding of how our population is, is living longer overall. So why should that be of concern to someone like myself, who's at the National Cancer Institute? Well, everyone knows that um, that aging and cancer appear to be inextricably linked. Our epi evidence uh, points to chronological age, specifically advanced age being the largest risk factor for most cancers um, that we see in a human in our human populations. But what's really important is that the relationships between uh, aging and cancer are multi-directional. We know that aging increases the risk of developing cancer and non-chronic diseases. And many of those non-chronic diseases, say like lung disease and diabetes, further increase our cancer risk. Um, So cancer and other chronic disease also promote additional aging. Um, each contributing to the quality of the survivorship of our of, of our cancer survivors. So we may see um, things like reduced functional ability, some geriatric syndromes, and, and actual death. So, you know, when you think about cancer, <laughs> I don't know what comes uh, to, to one's mind, mental model or mind's eye of a cancer survivor or someone who's diagnosed with cancer survivor. And I use um, cancer patient and survivor somewhat interchangeably because um, at least from NCI's perspective, we consider um, someone being a survivor from the point of diagnosis. 
But my point in, in, in raising this is that the median age of cancer diagnosis is 66 years. And, you know, from a societal framework, we consider those 65 and older as older adults. Um, and of course, the median age of cancer, um, of cancer diagnosis ranges from, you know, for the common cancers ranges for like 62 years of age for breast cancer, all the way to like 71 years um, for lung cancer. And this is really great news and, and part, and, and you may be shaking your head saying, what? But that's because um, the cancer death rates continue to fall and decline. So we are really at a point in our history in which even though we have um, incidents of cancers um, that increase with age, that we are really, um, our treatments and, and other things are allowing our cancer survivors to live longer. So what does all of this mean in terms of like how many within our U.S. population are actually um, are actually surviving with cancer? Well, my colleagues at the um, at our surveillance research program, along with the American Cancer Society, recently estimated that there are about 18.1 million cancer survivors. And of those, 67 percent will be age 65 or older this year. And that um, by the year 2070, 74% of cancer survivors will be age 65 or older. So I'm really hoping <laughs> that, uh, that this podcast will just highlight for, um, for federal employees and others that might be happening to listen about um, just the real impact that aging has on our survivorship population. Absolutely. I mean, there, you, there's so much you just mentioned to dive into about how you say, you know, that the aging population in the U.S. is going to double in size, mm -hmm. how there's sort of a feedback loop between cancer and aging and the relationship between those two things and how this is really a growing area of research and also a growing area of importance because, you know, the sheer number of older cancer survivors is going to increase so much. Right, um, right. And there are other aspects to why it's important, which I think, you know, maybe we'll get into later, um, you know, things like um, just as we consider our older population, you know, we really need to think about how we approach and treat cancer and and sort of support cancer survivorship really from you know a lifespan perspective we tend to know that you know our pediatric and childhood cancer survivors are at one end of the vulnerability spectrum and then our older uh, cancer survivors are at the other end and they both have um, physiological biological differences um, that make them vulnerable and and that make our approach to treating them, I think, somewhat unique. I'm wondering if you could tell us more about why it is important to learn more about how cancer survivors age compared to how the rest of the population ages. Oh, yeah. So, you know, when, when, in hearing that question, I'm, I also um, am a stress researcher and mm -hmm. um you know, when thinking about stress and cancer, you know, I've heard biological scientists and clinical scientists say, well, why, why study 
stress in the context of cancer because we're all stressed, right? And so, yes, we all age. And um, But there's considerable heterogeneity and variability in how we age. So from my particular perspective, um, our interests are not limited to chronological age, really. Um, as you um, and members of the audience might know, that chronological ages is really just based solely on the passage of time. So it's the person age in years. But chronological age has limited significance in terms of health. There are other types of aging that have implications for cancer survivors um, and everyone else, quite frankly. So we can think about something like subjective age, which is based on how people act or feel. And, you know, if I were if we were having, you know, either a live um, uh, discussion um, or one in which we could use pictures, I would show you, you know, how someone at 85 um, in one condition looks completely completely different from someone um, in 80, who's 85, um, you know, another person. Um, we also know that measures of functional capability um, determine how we are able to function in our body. So that's something that, that we like to refer to as functional age. And then there's also biological age, which refers to changes in the body that commonly occur as we age. Um, but because these changes affect some people sooner than others, some people are biologically old at 65, say, um, and others are not and may not appear biologically as relative to to uh, to the first person until a decade or more later. Um, so we know that um, there are noticeable uh, differences in apparent age among people of similar chronological age, and it could be caused by things like their environmental exposures, their lifestyle that they've engaged in historically over time, their habits, and maybe even subtle effects of disease rather than by differences in actual aging. So aging is really a process um, that's defined differently by different scholars. Um, I offer um, for our consideration uh, Kirkwood and Austed's uh, 2000 characterization of aging as really a progressive loss of function um, that's accompanied by decreasing fertility and increasing mortality with advanced age. Um, and I also offer the working um, conceptualization that doctors Jennifer Gaida, Lisa Galicchio, and I use as we guide our work in cancer survivorship and aging. Um, we really see aging as a dynamic interplay of biological, physiological, environmental, psychological, behavioral, and social processes. Um, so our lifespan perspective on aging attempts to understand the whole survivor. And um, you may you may be familiar with um, an IOM report um, many years ago that, that sort of talked about cancer care for the whole patient. So it, it's it's sort of we're attempting to understand cancer care for or for the whole survivor. So we're interested in the life that they brought with them to treatment and the context which shapes their lived experiences as survivors. And we're a team of colleagues that are trained 
trained in anthropology, epidemiology, and psychology. So we really see variability in human aging as closely related to the social determinants of aging. Right. And it sounds like there are so many complex factors to understand. And then this bigger question about, you know, what might medical intervention look like? You mentioned that stress is a major factor in aging. I think we can all understand that cancer introduces an immense amount of stress. Are there specific treatment considerations for cancer survivors as they age? And how might mental health and psychosocial concerns be addressed in the aging population of cancer survivors? Yeah, so, you know, as um, as you may recall, um, I mentioned a bit earlier that the median age of a cancer diagnosis is 66 years. Um, and, um, you know, we're challenged to consider whether individuals at older chronological, biological, or functional ages have unique needs and characteristics that should be considered uh, in treatment decision-making. However, I am not medically trained. I'm a PhD. Um, so I really refrain from answering your question clinically. However, you know, I can offer the perspective that um, aging cancer survivor populations are observed to have complex healthcare and medical surveillance needs. Um, in 2006, uh, the former director and, and my former colleague of the NCI Office of Cancer Survivorship, Julia Rowland, and a woman that I consider a tour de force <laughs> that uh, nearly single-handedly started the International Society um, for Geriatric Oncology, and that's the late Rosemary Yancic, wrote a commentary um, that stated that we must understand and find ways to reduce the adverse impact of surviving cancer on the health of older adults. Mm -hmm. So I was blessed, um, you know, many years ago to have had the opportunity to know and work with the late uh, Dr. Arthi Hurria. Her life's work as a medical oncologist trained in geriatric medicine was to understand how aging impacts the experience of cancer and cancer treatment and, and conversely how cancer and its treatments impact the experience of aging. So she characterized her older survivors as having, as coming to her, having polypharmacy, multiple chronic comorbid chronic conditions, mild cognitive impairment. Many were presented to her as being pre-frail or frail, needing assistance with daily activities, limited social support, and living alone. And of course, this does not characterize all older um, individuals or all older individuals that will be diagnosed with cancer, but that is what she primarily saw in her clinical experience. And, uh, you know, in a recent review of the challenges of survivorship for older adults diagnosed with cancer, um, Fitch and colleagues, I think this was just published uh, earlier this year, synthesized evidence um, and highlighted that on average, older adults with cancer take nearly 10 different medications and that we must consider the impacts of adverse drug effects like falls and cognitive issues um, and also consider that drug and disease interactions can be severe. So, you know, older patients and survivors uh, also have 
a higher burden, like I said, of frailty, mobility limitations, comorbid conditions that also can bring about a lot of stress um, and fatigue. Um, and they also have a greater risk for other physical and cognitive impairment when we compare them to cancer-free um, controls. We found, uh, my colleagues um, several years ago, um, found uh, you know, that poor physical and mental health related quality of life was reported in about 25 and 10% of survivors. And that's relative uh, compared to 10% um, and 6% of adults uh, without cancer. So, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, different types of existential issues um, can definitely come about um, when you are dealing with a life-threatening disease. And even when you are dealing with a disease that changes over time. So we haven't even considered um, the new sort of emergence of um, survivorship populations that are, are important. And those are uh, those um, survivors that are living with advanced and metastatic disease that deal also with uncertainty um, and prognostic um, unawareness or prognostic uncertainty um, as well. So definitely many um, psychosocial issues that need addressing. And it's not only within cancer. I think it's within any uh, chronic condition uh, which presents um, a threat to life. Absolutely. And um, you mentioned comorbidities, and I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could speak more to why it's important to consider pre-existing comorbidities or conditions that arise during treatment and survivorship and sort of some of the downstream implications 10, 20, 30 years after treatment. Yeah, well, I, you know, for the most thing, uh, you know, I want us to consider that comorbidities influence treatment, right? Comorbidities influence, it influences treatment decision-making, it influences follow-up care, it, it influences the complexity of care. Many cancer patients and survivors do not present with that being their only health concern. So it requires coordination um, and consideration of not only managing effectively the cancer for cure or control, but also managing effectively the comorbidities that may have pre-existed before their diagnosis or that may come to, to clinical awareness um, during their survivorship journey. Um, so it requires also a considerable um, complexity of, of medication adherence, um, self-management. Um, and one of the things that, that, that we haven't talked about yet are even the caregiving complexity. So as we know, cancer does not only affect the person with cancer, it affects their families, it affects um, those that provide care. Um, and so we even know that um, 
you know, if a caregiver has their own set of comorbidities or has, um, you know, other psychosocial um, issues and concerns, that there is some, you know, interrelationship between both the survivor and the caregiver. So that is also another area of emerging importance that my colleagues at NCI and, and those um, in the academic community are paying attention to. So, you know, you asked about, um, you know, the impact, I believe, of cancer treatment, um, at, you know, 10, 20 and, and 30 years um, away from initial treatment. And I, I must say that this is not all doom and gloom. I really want to highlight that we are living really in the best of times relative to the past. You know, our cancer survivors are living longer and that is like a hallelujah moment. So, you know, our estimates um, as of 2022 are that 69% of our survivors have lived at least five years or longer since their diagnosis. 47% of survivors have lived 10 years or more. Um, and 18% of our survivors have lived 20 years since their diagnosis. So we really do need to celebrate the tremendous advances that allow our survivors to age chronologically. Mm -hmm. And I have really unrelenting optimism that the quality of survivorship following cancer and cancer treatment will continue to improve. That's why we have significant investment in cancer survivorship research. Um, however, we are still aware that, you know, our cancer treatments cause long-term and late effects, but still, you know, my institute, NCI, the FDA industry, and other organizations are, you know, really burning the midnight oil to develop targeted therapies that will minimize off-target effects um, and the emergence of what we like to consider the aging phenotypes that arise because our conventional treatments um, are known to affect the underlying hallmarks of aging. That's great to hear. And it's also always great to hear about, as you mentioned, sort of this growing attention and research area to caregivers and their mm -hmm. role in cancer survivorship. Um, there's a lot of encouraging work being done, especially as you mentioned, around um, more targeted therapies and reducing adverse effects from treatment. Yes, and I, I want to also raise um, that, you know, we have entered into an era, well, we've been in in a while, but an era of, you know, sort of the emergence of informal caregiving, right? We've transitioned a lot of our treatments so that they are, you know, presented as maintenance therapies, you know, or that they're given orally, um, you know, the complexity around that type of management um, can be mind blowing. And so we must really give credit to caregivers that are really in the trenches, um, supporting those uh, our survivors. And, you know, our caregivers are aging as well. Um, and come to the caregiving situation with their own concerns. Um, so we sort of consider um, cancer caregivers as secondary survivors, um, and they're secondary survivors that are aging as well. So we definitely also want to pay attention to their health, um, physical and mental well-being. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's a disease that affects so many people. It's mm -hmm. um, great to hear how that's really being looked at. You mentioned that this is your passion, that this mm -hmm. is a passion area for you. And I wanted to ask what brought you to this field and why is it important to you? Well, what's, well, <laughs> way back in, I think, 2013, there was a paper published in JAMA that I read that really knocked my socks off. Um, and it was a paper uh, that was looking at the late and long-term effects of adult survivors of um, pediatric cancers. And there is a particular quote in that paper that really brought me to aging um, as a focus. Um, and if I, I think I can remember it, it's sort of like, um, you know, considering that the maybe the median age of, of this cohort that they studied was 32 years old, the data that they show in terms of the prevalence and the gravity of the sort of um, adverse health outcomes was staggering um, and really pointed to um, a pattern of accelerated or premature aging. So I actually came to, to, to an interest in aging thinking about, oh, well, yep, I want to study accelerated or premature aging in AYA uh, survivors or pediatric survivors. And it was actually Arthi that convinced me Page in order, <laughs> you know, in order to see those types of things that are observed in the younger survivors, you literally do have to wait 20 or 30 years. But there is, although complex, there is another population, and that is our older population that I see, that she saw in the clinic, that, that really can showcase um, how our treatments may, although with curative and control intent, are leading to unintentional consequences. Um, so that really lit a fire um, in me and, um, and I was able to work with her and she mentored uh, my then at the time postdoctoral fellow, uh, Dr. Jennifer Gaida, who is now a colleague. Um, but you may also ask me, how did I end up in cancer overall? I was actually trained as a cardiovascular researcher and one that was very much interested in stress and lived in, and lived experiences and um, how it uh, affected uh, sort of the hemodynamic profiles that are associated with cardiovascular disease. I then transformed that interest into thinking about stress um, and how stress um, through neuroendocrine regulation might impact uh, cancer progression. But but at the heart of it, I am trained as a clinical health psychologist. And so for me, I come uh, to this, although I don't, uh, I don't have a clinical practice. I come to this thinking about how do we support research that helps us understand how we provide cancer care for the whole patient, right? And and you know how do we think about um, the social determinants of health. Um, that for many people like me um, and those on the podcast might know might not know that I am a, a scientist of color um, that 
you know, my mother, when she was, um, you know, uh, diagnosed, um, you know, and my aunt, when diagnosed, were in some ways disadvantaged due to structural inequities. So it's really important to me to, um, you know, understand the science of of healthy aging and survivorship research that not only focuses on, you know, those that have the resources and those that that are not um, those that are not well resourced, um, but thinking about uh, research that focuses on preserving functional ability um, and preventing loss of capacity. So it's important to me, really, mm -hmm. Um, to encourage research um, in this nexus um, that without compromising cure or control really helps us preserve or restore optimal quality and duration of life and enables our survivors to live long, healthy health spans, right? That enable them to engage in the things that they value. And this is so connected to the NCI mission, you know, which really strives to support, um, you know, the advancement of scientific knowledge to help all people live longer, healthier lives. And for me, living longer, healthier lives means that we have to pay attention to and care about the quality of aging amongst those that we treat uh, and cure uh, for uh, cancer. I really appreciated um, that story you shared about how this paper was a catalyst for you. I think mm -hmm. you're putting your work out there. You never know what's going to strike someone. So that's right. uh, that's a really great story. Um, yeah, it is. What's even fascinating is, you know, um, forward, I don't know, to almost 10 years, uh, you know, I was able to, to, to work with my most brilliant uh, at the time postdoctoral fellow, uh, Jennifer Guida. Um, and she um, is, you know, in the throes of finishing up a paper, analyzing data on um, accelerated aging and biological aging in the same cohort. And so this is the first time <laughs> that I have actually seen my interests in a way come full circle. Mm. So thank you for pointing out the significance of that paper. Even I've just even seen it in a different way, just through us talking. Oh, this is great. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I hope that the audience takes away um, that NCI is really interested in understanding the nexus between cancer and aging, not only from a biological perspective, but also from a lived survivorship perspective. Um, we really want to be able to support the growing survivorship population to not just live longer, but to live with health, right? However, that may be well-defined for them. Um, and so it's no law. I mean, yes, of course it is about life expectancy, but, you know, we also have to consider the societal trends that, that we are coming up against, you know, 
we are working longer. We are contributing uh, to society, um, you know, in, in many different ways as we age. And so it really is our responsibility to, you know, cure and control, um, but to also be concerned and to work with colleagues that are in other um, disciplines or have other research foci to sort of think about how we can work together to make sure that our survivors, you know, do not don't survive from cancer, but then die from congestive heart failure due to treatment mm -hmm. or die from diabetes or, or things like that. So it really is, it really is thinking about the whole survivor. Um, and while at NCI, of course, we have to have, um, you know, the sort of laser focused emphasis on, you know, cure and control. We also need to think about multimorbidities and the ways that our survivors come to us um, in ecologically valid ways um, and that our treatments must be um, administered outside of a clinical trial environment with real people, real people that are aging, that are loving, that are engaging, that really want to um, thrive despite a diagnosis of cancer. And so we're now at the age where for some, for some cancers, you know, it's going to be more of a chronic disease management, some may say. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, just trying to stay um, in line with the pace of how our treatments are allowing survivors to age considerably longer. And in that vein, we want them to also um, be able to age um, in a healthful manner. Absolutely. Well, Paige, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. This has been a really fantastic conversation. Oh. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. And I, I want to just end by, you know, just acknowledging all of my colleagues at NCI that I co-labor in this work with. Um, but I hope that I have represented our perspectives well. Um, and I hope that I have uh, generated some interest uh, in, uh, you know, in our older uh, survivorship population. HealthCast, along with GovCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them in your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at gcio.com.